What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard down in Soho, south of Houston, not Houston, south of Houston, running quite a few all-day sessions this week, which has been quite amazing because um, as, as some of you know, I launched the Kickstarter for my book, Strategy Is Your Words, late on Monday night with my kids. I got them to press the button. It was a special moment for us. And uh, I think an hour or two ago, we, we reached the initial funding target. The funding target was $15,000 US dollars. It includes, that total includes postage. Postage and shipping have been a difficult thing to work out. I'm still a little bit burned from having published a magazine and discovering shipping costs and duties over the years uh, and not getting paid and dealing with returns and all these kinds of things. So I've been a bit conservative and I just launched the book with US postage. Big shout out to everyone who's supported so far. It's kind of, a, it's amazing. I left Tuesday morning very early to run a session all day. And in my mind, I'm like, God, wouldn't it be cool if I could raise a grand or two today? And then I checked the Kickstarter at about 4 p.m. So I guess by that time it had been up for 18 hours or so and I think it had reached about $8,000. I was like, oh my God, I'm feeling so overwhelmed by this. And the thing is like the 15, the, the money that I'm raising, a ton of that is going to go to mail and postage. And it's really to help me publish the first round of hardcover books. If you've ever published books, you know there's not a lot of profit or margin in, in them. Uh, but this money I'm gonna use just to cover costs as far as design and editorial assistance and the printing of of the first edition i'm trying to answer the faqs as i go i've been i meant to publish a podcast earlier this week and then the funding took off so quickly that i was like oh god now what do i say <laughs> so anyway here i am get a, a brief lunch break in between doing one of my favorite things in the world which is training and talking to people about what we all do for a living it's one of the situations in which I feel myself come alive and I know I repeat that but I repeat it not just to remind myself of it although that's an important part for me it's also to subtly encourage not challenge but encourage other people to think about where they come alive and to see if there's a way for them to build more of their lives around that maybe they already have it I'm not saying people don't so kind of feeling all the emotions I do feel that coming to New York for me is about getting to these, this kind of experience, which I'm very fortunate to be in. And for me, the journey to New York was not really about being an employee. And I think if anything, my time in New York reinforced an idea I've held for a, a long time. I've held it awkwardly because I have been an employee for a lot of my adult life, not always full time. And now just being fortunate enough to be able to build my days around the stuff I love which is interviewing people deep awkward conversations the ones that you listen to training events writing and words uh, and to be able to sort of sustain a family in New York doing those things it's I didn't know I wanted this in life and I totally want it I don't even know when I was growing up if I was ever clear on what I wanted I just kind of went through the system and now in the second part of my life, which is not about age, it's about, about mindset. <clears throat> trying to be really intentional with what I'm doing while also being open to mistakes, 
where mistakes can take us, open to opportunities, open to serendipity and randomness. I don't have many plans for what I'm going to talk to you about today. I'm going to try to speak for 20 minutes or so. Uh, I've, I've, been, I've interacted, I think, with probably close to 100 people in the face this week <laughs> talking about strategy and some of the things that are on my mind, they're going to come out. But I guess one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to talk about when I do training is trying to advocate for what we all do thinking for a living and trying to encourage people to not just think it, think about it as far as the next creative brief they have to write or the next RFP they have to respond to, but trying to encourage people to think of themselves as advocates and activists for what we do. I do feel, I feel a quiet panic and desperation, a quiet primal scream personally, and I feel I hear it among other people who do similar work to us, that is to say, trying to understand the world, trying to understand people, trying to create new world, ways of existing individually in the world, but also trying to help companies create ideas. It's difficult work. I do feel a bit of a primal scream about this. And part of that's about the, well, some people talk about feeling the pressure from data and analytics, from programmatic, tech and the aggressive dominance that data and analytics and programmatic technology has had on the industry recently and that pressure's been to some degree I'm being a little bit dramatic the pressure's to some degree been to shame creativity and thinking to try to divorce people from having opinions well let's see what the data tell, tell us or tells us I like data as a plural, it depends where you are in the world. Some people who do what we do have found an interesting way of existing within management consultancies. Other people are nervous that the management consultancies are going to steal all the work because they're good at selling and good at what they do. And then what are the other people going to do? <laughs> Scopes are changing, skills are going all over the place. A few pieces of news in the past couple of weeks about strategy departments downsizing. And what's kind of cool is that there's, there are people on the internet now who are able to talk about it. It used to be something that we didn't really talk about. And now when it happens, people are posting links, being honest about it, saying they need help about it. And that's awesome. Nothing wrong with that. This happens. And I, I think that sense of volatility, you think you've got a job and boom, it's gone. I think it's really palpable in America in a way that is different elsewhere because America plays big. It's about hitting home runs. The interview I did with Tom Morton from RGA last year, we talked a lot about the differences in strategy between the US and, for example, England, where he's from. And America's really good at placing big bets and then acting and executing. And if you come from more of an, a thinking or intellectual business culture, which is not to say that America doesn't think, but if you come from one where, for example, you're talking about the classics, incredible Greek and Roman thinkers, for example, you might feel a bit of culture shock, maybe even offended by the American ambition and drive to execute. But when you're here for a while and you let it wash over you a bit, it's, it's actually quite amazing. And it's something that I've really enjoyed. And talking to Julian Cole with the events that we've done, I think we've both 
benefited from the idea of have a thought, place a bet, move. Keep going, place a bet, move. Place a bet, move. As opposed to, oh, I'm not sure I'm allowed to, am I able to do this sort of stuff, so on and so forth. So a few, a few themes there, I'm jumping all over the place. A few themes there. One is about how there is definitely pressure within the industry and it's really cool to see people support each other as companies downsize or change the structures that they have. They might even be growing, but they might not want the strategy department as, as part of that growth or they want, my few, might want fewer strategists. I advocate for strategists, but I also advocate for strategy, which is to advocate for critical thinking and creativity. The act is separate from the humans. I do love the humans who, mostly humans, <laughs> all of them, mostly, who do this kind of work. And then I think this idea of placing bets and moving. And, you know, when I first came to New York, did a bunch of interviews. I came for two weeks in the middle of winter. It was right around Australia Day, which is the end of... January, I saw the Super Bowl, I watched it at the Brooklyn Bowl, which is a cool little spot in Brooklyn, bowling alley, with good, good little hip-hop tradition as well, and I met people, and a lot of them were quite frank, they're like, look, just whatever job you take, just stay in touch, if it doesn't work out, let us know. People are quite upfront about that, because they're placing bigger bets. And so in some ways, I think in a smaller city or a city where everyone kind of knows each other, that stuff is, is more of a taboo to admit that if you don't like somewhere, just come to us. <laughs> it was really interesting to get that vibe immediately. Uh, the point of this is that as jobs bounce around, there will be volatility and the volatility can be good and not good. The volatility can be good in that you're involved with a pitch, boom, you've just won a 10 million, 100 million dollar pitch, you gotta staff up 30, 40, 50 people, whatever it is, depending on the agency you're in. The opposite of volatility is also true. You could lose the 100 million dollar client, 10 million dollar client, boom, and guess what? I think for the most part, many people in the industry now, and especially now, like, you know what, it's, it's volatile. But if you're doing good stuff, we'll take you. Definitely want to take you. So that, those are some of the thoughts that have been on my mind. All right, I just, I just took a pause so I could get some food. I just wanted to record something. Trying to have some discipline and some routine around the publishing and the writing. And I have gone a few days without putting a podcast up. I've got a few in my back pocket that are edited. But I just did want to talk about the book and some of the things that I'm coming across. I think I think some of the other things that I'm coming across, through, especially through the training and the chats that I'm having lately, is uh, I know I've made this point a few times. And I think I'm echoing it from earlier: is that there are more people doing some kind of strategy and some kind of strategy work than ever. I think it's not data. There's a lot of pressure on people to do it. There's a lot of pressure to sell, especially if you're in New York. New York's really, you know, it likes to place big bets with a lot of pressure, a lot of focus on money. A lot of money to be made at times when the economy is good and a lot of a lot of pressure on, on selling landing deals in ways that I think is I, I do think it is more intense than many of the other countries that I'm most familiar with selling and pitching can often feel intense it's just that I, I think a lot of people come to New York or they're born here and they're like oh my god there's so much opportunity here and with that come very high can come very high expectations and sometimes there can be a gap for people who are new to strategy who have to do some kind of strategy work as part of their job, maybe full-time strategy work, maybe it's just part of the job, and they don't always have the 
ecosystem around them, big word, but ecosystem around them, which includes culture, a culture that understands the importance of psychological safety, that encourages risk and bravery, that kind of demands it in thinking, that is comfortable with absurdist things that don't always belong together because that's what absurdism is and I advocate for absurdism within strategy. Putting things together that don't belong together is absurd until it's not. And the fact that it's absurd is what we pay attention to and that's why we share these things. What street am I on for the Soho people? I'm right near Prince Street. Near that G-Star store. La Colombe is there. I think there was or is a Supreme store nearby that sometimes there's a, lot, a large line in front of. Uh, I've been downtown most of this week actually for different reasons. And I th it's weird. I think I, I've worked in Dumbo, Brooklyn. Did that for almost three years and I've worked around Hudson Street twice can't say any good work came out of my time at Hudson Street. I have very mixed feelings about it, which is to say they're not mixed at all. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're not mixed feelings. Hudson Street, we have unfinished business, my friend. That's what I'm saying. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, Hudson Street, there's a, a gang of agencies and agency-like uh, operations around Hudson Street. I started at Saatchi and Saatchi in New York there about eight years ago. Uh, many other agencies are in that area. It's towards the Hudson River and it's west of Soho but it is funny that when you work around that area it's only a five or ten minute walk to Soho I think it's funny how, how little a lot of people actually go into Soho kind of just at your desk at meetings and maybe maybe you're visiting Minneapolis or other cities where your clients are or New Jersey business parks more often than you're even going to Soho and that's the thing I was thinking through this week in that I came downtown and I've, I have been downtown a few times this year but every time I come down there's like a new tall building uh, maybe one of the railway stations has been renovated I'm like oh my god I think I've been to overseas cities more than I've been to the downtown part of New York recently I think I've only been to Dumbo and Brooklyn like once or twice in the past year or two and it's, it's kind of a, it's a cool spot so little segue there I just wanted to describe what's going on there's a bit of wind it's overcast winter is coming but I'm determined to do well through winter determined I'd have to write another book <clears throat> uh, with all the, the training that I've been doing I, I think one way to summarize a set of questions is as follows when do I do all of this, in what order, and how do I know whether I've done it, and how do I know whether I've done it well? <laughs> I feel like 80% of the questions, once we start to get through what insights are, and then what they're not, what ideas are, and what they're not, just my definitions, as I always say, choose your own definitions, I share things that I've either thought through myself, or developed, or borrowed from other people that try to source things when I can. Nervous with this book that I've missed things, that, that source opportunity to source people. If you put stuff on the internet like a lot of us do, and then you start to see your own words appear in other people's slides without your name on them, when you know exactly when you wrote the thing and what words you chose, that's, that's weird. And I, total, I totally get it. We all do it. We hear something on a podcast, we read something in a book, we read a bit of research, and we're like, oh, here's the thing about owning a dog it does this and we don't say that it, it does this for a relationship and then we, we don't always source our sources source our research but 
yeah, I think one thing with the book is I'm like, oh, have I got everyone in here? I guess the cool thing, though, is I can update the book because I can do whatever I want. In the Kickstarter listing, I, please check it out. I recorded a video. If you've read the introduction or heard it in the podcast, there's two versions of it. You can find it. Strategy is your words introduction. The introduction is called Fighting Words, and it talks about Andrea Pirlo and Inigo Montoya and how when Andrea Pirlo one of the most famous Italian soccer players in the world, moved to America at the age of 35. About a year after he arrived, he was asked what it's like playing in America, and he said, there's a lot of running to little play. So the introduction talks about running. A lot of the book talks about running, and running is a metaphor for the word focus. And there is a paradox, big word, an irony. I never know if I use the word irony correctly, do you? Oh. There's an irony there that People who think for a living don't always think about how to do their living, how to work. Oh yeah, come into the meeting. You can have complete access to my calendar. Put all the meetings in. Ten meetings this week. That's not enough. Make it 20. Offsites, yes. I'll go to New Jersey for eight hours. I'll come in at 6 a.m. As opposed to, hang on, why are we doing any of this? What's the goal that we're trying to achieve? What's the best way of doing it? Imagine starting all projects, and I hope you do this, and I hope that this is obvious, with a few questions such as, what are we trying to learn from this project ourselves? What's the risk that we can take on this project? What's the best way to do this project? What's something we've learned about how we work well together that we can implement for each other so we get through this project more sane than the last project? Why not ask questions like that? There are about four there. See what happens. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to spend two minutes thinking about how to work better. Give yourself creative constraints such as, what if we could do this pitch and not work on the weekend? What would have to happen for that to happen? It might sound idealistic, but what's wrong with asking the question? The irony is you're going to go into a client, hopefully, and provoke them with some cheeky challenge like a big, what if we did this? Why can't you do that to yourself every day? What we do is ambiguous and uncertain until it isn't and until it isn't means that we want to have a sense of clarity and certainty with the way that we think I'm a big advocate for writing that's how I like to operate but you could write draw think write draw think exercise see what comes out there will be a word at some point write it down get get a sense of clarity you get it for yourself and then you get to share it with other people so you might think that you're clear you share share your thoughts with other people and it's not clear so you have to do more work and part of that work is going to be to understand how they think about words so that you can find that common ground with the words you use so that you can understand each other <laughs> so when people essentially ask questions of you know if we're talking about problems insights strategies ideas tactics and then we get into things like execution, communications plan, like when do I do what, in what order? It's like, hmm, you don't know. You don't know until you start doing it. I would usually focus on the problem first, the human problem behind the business problem. And if you don't have access to research and you don't have time to talk to people about it, it's tough. There will be cultures that don't want you to talk about problems. They just want you to make the five videos to bring the stuff to life, to execute it and don't talk back. <laughs> Put some fancy big words up front, but then well, how much of the five videos? You get to learn that on the fly. Maybe over time you can create a little triage system where you know there are certain clients you've got that are basically business as usual and you do your best job. Do you, sorry, you do your best work for them.
but not to the point where you go crazy trying to change them. You just you allow it to happen, do good, honest work. You try to bring them good ideas, good insights, good research. And then the flip side of that could be clients that maybe they have some kind of crisis. Crisis can lead to change. Maybe there's some kind of change, they're under threat, and you go in hard knowing that they're interested in really big, provocative, scary thinking. But to always try to do that, unless you've got an agency that's renowned for it, whether, or whether you're renowned for it and you've got an agency renowned for it, a department that's around for it if you're in-house, to do that on every single project, it's, it's, it's risky and it could, it could tire you out. The second half of the question that people are asking is like, how do I know when I have it? I come down to, I think it's about four key things. One is the mechanics. The first one is the mechanics. And that's why I spend so much time talking about the words that I use and how I understand them. And I don't do it to force anybody else to have the same understanding. It's just, here's how I've come after a very long time to understand these words and it helps me work better and faster. So the mechanics of an insight, for example, first of all, to me, an insight is an idea. And going to repeat some concepts for you. I talk about this a lot in the book, but these are on my mind because I've been running sessions this week with different groups. <coughs> so an insight is an idea. It combines things, two, two topics, two things at least, together in, in novel and useful ways. So I'm looking for two things in an insight statement. I want it to feel like a revelation or a confession. If we're going to be deep about insights, maintain a high standard, this is difficult, I think where an insight becomes more than an idea is when we see it, we hear it, we think about it, and we reorganize our lives, right? So it's not just combining things together in novel and useful ways, it's doing so in a way where we're like, oh my gosh, I have to change how I behave, maybe even who I am. If you want to practice this, here's how you practice it. Think about how you've changed in the past year or two. What's one thing you've learned, one revelation that you've come across that's made you change your behavior? Have you changed your behavior? Sometimes you haven't. You're just trying to get through paying off debt, paying off college debt, mortgages, relationships. Life gets tough. Maybe you haven't changed. But maybe you go back two years then, and there's, there's got to be one thing in two years. And it could be a simple, light-hearted thing. It does, doesn't have to be deep and twisted. <laughs> like any conversation that I have if you hang out with me. <laughs> so we look at the mechanics. Insight, bringing two things together that don't usually belong together. That's an idea, but an insight would encourage someone to change their behavior, reorganize their lives. The second is subjective feeling. Do I feel this in a way where I'm like, oh, that's exciting. Does your body kind of, do you feel it in your body? That's what I look for, everyone's different. Maybe you don't look for that. Maybe you go more for logic. Is there proof about that? Maybe you start there. The, th the third thing for me would be, can I support it? Can I argue for it? Is there proof about this? Sorry, and is that a combination of qualitative or, and or, or combination of qualitative and quantitative research? Quotes from research, numbers from somewhere. I'm not looking for, and I really get frustrated with this, and I know that you're under pressure to do it, when people talk about data-driven insights and they want the insight to say 66% of people believe X. Just that's not really an insight. The insight's like why that thing is, exists. And if you've manufactured that insight to get the attention, for example, of a journalist, you know, is it really an insight? Could be. There could be an insight in it. Okay, so we've got mechanics, we've got subjective feeling, we've got proof. Then we go 
Can a collective subjective? Oh, big words. I haven't used those two together. Collective subjective. You share it with other people. And you listen for their feelings. Do they giggle? Do they snort? Do their eyes widen? Is there some kind of reaction? Because that's probably the brain going, this is weird. And then if they relax into it, they're like, this is weird, but totally makes sense. And I get it. So mechanics, subjective feeling, can I prove it? Collective subjective, I don't even use those words together. That's the first time that's come out. See what happens when you do stream of consciousness talking. The fifth one would be to Google it. I'll often Google an insight, the language I've found, just to see if someone else has come across it, to work out whether it's actually historically new, not just psychologically new, which means new to me versus new ever. And if I find something that's like it, can I make it different enough? Does it matter that it's existed before if I find someone's used it? In, in maybe it's in advertising, it could be in comedy, it could be wherever. And I think we're at six, aren't we? Can I see ideas coming from it? And I'm talking specifically about an insight, but you know, the way that I like to work is that an insight, a problem statement and a strategy statement through to a single-minded proposition and campaign idea, they, they're nested like a Russian doll. You're often riffing on a word or two or a theme or two, failure and success, winning or losing, love and hate, kind of riffing on these words in a very tight, almost clumsy way. And I'm totally okay with some of the strategy language being slightly clumsy because if I'm working with really good copywriters or art directors, I want them to see it and go, okay, I get that, but you know what? I can do even better. As opposed to trying to write something that's better than the copywriter. And who's to say whether you're capable of that or even do it? It's not even the point. And for them to be like, oh, you know, to, you know maybe, maybe that'll offend them. They'll think you're arrogant. <laughs> maybe, maybe they'll be intimidated by you if they're having a moment of insecurity. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so how do I know whether I have an insight or an idea or a problem? It's a variation of one. Mechanics based on how you understand those words. Two, subjective feeling. Am I like reacting to it? Am I excited? Three, can I support it? Can I prove it? Four, I'll go collective subjective. Do other people react to it? Do they snort, giggle? Do they make weird sounds? Do they look scared? Uh, four, was five. Can we, there was another one, wasn't there? Can we use it? Can I see ideas coming from it? It's a lot of subjectivity, which you know what? Is either really scary for you or really liberating and fun. One of the challenges with admitting the subjectivity of what we do is that you might work with people who don't like to admit that this is true because maybe they just don't understand. Maybe they don't think they can charge for an informed opinion because the opinion seems cheap, but the information seems expensive. So the opinion might undermine the premium, the price of the information. Maybe it's scary, it's uncertain, because it's all uncertain until it isn't. So there's a few themes there. I'm not sure this is a necessarily coherent episode, although I did list some things with numbers against them, so <laughs> maybe I've convinced you that there's some coherence here. Point is, thank you so much for supporting the Kickstarter for Strategy Is Your Words. There's a bunch of incentives there, just across $15,000 within... Uh, I don't know, 30, I can't count, 36 hours. And what that money enables me to do is to challenge the business model of what we do. I did used to publish a magazine and I could only do a couple of time. I think it cost me fifteen dollars to $20,000 Australian back in the day to print a 108-page full-color A4 magazine with a CD, sometimes a CD-ROM, mounted on the cover. 
I did. I don't think I ever made money from it. I did it because I loved it. I wanted to support these kind of underground creative voices, and it was very involved. I burned out after every issue. I was. I might have raised 50% of the money through advertising, and the business model there is that you have to pay for the printing and the CD-ROMs and the subscription mailing and the freight, possibly with duty, before you get much money back. You could get some of the advertising money back, but then your sales could take, from memory, six to nine months to see any money from them. That was bad English. And around 2001, after September 11, there was like a real... Um, the, the economy got hit. A lot of the distributors I was working with disappeared. You wouldn't get paid. It was really difficult to sustain. And I don't believe in the idea of a business book being a business card. This is art to me. I want it to have a life. I don't just have to. I don't have to follow any of the conventions. None of you do either. Do what you want. Maybe this will only exist as a hardcover book. And you know what? Some weird comedy show or some weird theatre show. Which, by the way, I'm doing one. <laughs> it's not a comedy show so much. It's a weird theatre show. This uh, Wednesday, December four, which is the last night of the Kickstarter. It's in New York. It's an hour and a half. It's called Strategy Upon a Strategist. If you've come to the Strategy Mega Classes. You would have seen the content that I've gone through in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, where I talk about things like lone wolves and imposter syndrome and clarity, truth, meaning fog, what those words are. But you know what? This one's going to be a bit strange. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen. It's going to be a bit strange and it will not involve... I don't think it's going to involve a presentation. I've started to plot it out. But this is me just trying to really push myself into what I think is art. And I know I'm doing it through strategy. And there are people in the world who will roll their eyes at that. Why would you take strategy so seriously? Why would you talk about it? I'll tell you why I talk about it. I talk about strategy to talk about critical thinking and then to talk about creativity and then to talk about self-awareness and self-understanding. That's why I do it. That's why I feel an urgency around it. It's more than creative briefs. Well, creative briefs are fun. All right. So again, shout outs to everyone who's supported the Kickstarter, listening, who's listened to Sweathead. I really appreciate it. It's a weird scene that we're in. It's very underground. A lot of people don't like to share their toys. And so when I see other strategy folk, especially like, it's not just heads of strategy, but especially heads of strategy sharing links to things that I've done, that you've done, that friends have done. I'm like, man, this is, this is good. This is good. We need this community energy if we value what we do. And if you're listening to it, unless you're listening to dislike what I'm talking about or to dislike me, I'd say you value what you do and you will value the community around you. And I know a lot of you actually don't have close physical access to such a community I would challenge you to create that could be two or three people in your town in your city you could get together once a month have a chat see what happens you know what's going to happen it's called pro, pro, your pro-social behavior your social behavior will trigger stuff in your brain that you enjoy <laughs> you feel related to how good's that not like these lone wolves walking around agencies trying to fit in hoping that someone likes their thinking alright shout outs to all of you big thanks i'm feeling all the emotions i'm on my feet for like 30 35 hours this week talking so things are going to come out in a rambly way i think i'm just feeling a sense of love that's what's going on take care of yourselves make some art peace